The following episode was recorded by Joe Aguirre and myself. And at the time that we had finished going over the topics discussed, we had recorded almost an hour and a half of audio. So we decided to split it in half, and the first half is what you will hear today. Here's part one of Why Is He Not In Jail? We are, at this moment, 12 episodes into this season, and from the first few episodes, there's one specific question that has been asked by listeners in emails I've gotten across our social media. And this one specific question has been asked more and more as the weeks have gone on. It's at the point now that it's almost deafening. And that question is the title of this episode today. Why is he not in jail? And that question is in reference to Mark Vincent, father of Doreen Vincent. We've had a lot of conversations amongst ourselves on what to do in terms of storytelling on this podcast, because obviously there's a lot of true crime podcasts out there. But the thing with most other ones is that there's a mystery. With Doreen Vincent's story, you have a set of circumstances that isolates and limits your number of possibilities. The family was only living at the house on Whirlwind Hill for 10 days when Doreen disappeared, which I should point out, we've already said on this podcast that we think whatever happened to her probably was not on June 15th of 1988. It was probably a few days closer earlier to the 12th. So it could have just been a week that they were living at that house. And the family didn't know anyone in town Certainly, Doreen didn't know anyone in town because no one had met her. And add to that that you're dealing with a very rural area, acres and acres of open fields. None of the neighbors were in close proximity, the closest being Jim Piscati, who only vaguely remembers that family. It's on a ridiculously steep hill. The roads are not made for walking because, as we've stated before, there's no sidewalk and there's not even a shoulder if a car wanted to pull over. And at 12 years old, a child does not just wander off into the night not knowing where they're walking to, especially if they had the opportunity to call somebody first. And as Donna has told us multiple times, if Doreen had wanted to leave that house on Whirlwind Hill Road that night, she would have called. And the other limiting thing within this set of circumstances is that there were only two adults who knew what was going on inside that house at the time, only one of them is still alive, and that just happens to be the prime suspect in the case. So you've got this dichotomy with Mark Vincent where he's the one person with the best insight, and he's also the person that all the circumstantial evidence is stacked up against. So it's like Joe said at the beginning of episode 10, this is not a whodunit. There is a man who knows what happened, by which I mean the what, the when, and the how. But there's not just one reason why this man is not in jail. There's actually a few categories of reasons. So I'm joined today by Joe Aguirre. And based on everything we've learned over the past five months of investigating the case, we are going to try and effectively answer the big question of today's episode. This is season two, episode 12 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio.
Pertaining to the first category of reasons on why Mark has not been arrested in connection with Doreen's disappearance, I want us to take a few minutes to compare Doreen's case to the case I covered in the first season, the Johnny Gosh case. And the biggest difference of them all in these two cases is exposure. And if you've been following season two, you know that I was back in West Des Moines, Iowa, just a couple weeks ago, doing an update on season one. And that's when Joe and Jess guest hosted episodes 10 and 11 for me. And you guys even said it then, Doreen's case is different from Johnny's case because everybody knows who Johnny Gosh is. And I said this in my very first episode of this podcast. I said it all throughout that season up into the finale. That is 100% to the credit of Johnny's mother, Noreen. And that's just a fact. It doesn't matter what kind of interactions I've had with her. If anything, that only gets Johnny's name out there in the public even more 40 years later. It is to the credit of her tenacity. Think about it if she had done the opposite, if she had not been showing up at the local news station every day, being a pain in the ass to all the reporters in the newsroom, and talking to the newspapers every day, and making calls to Good Morning America and so forth. None of us would know who Johnny Gosh is. He would have just been another nameless, faceless kid to have vanished decades ago. So even if she went down numerous rabbit holes, and even if she unfairly accused people of things they didn't do, Every second of that still keeps Johnny's name in our lexicon. So now it's not just Johnny's mother who is constantly talking about him, repeating his name. It's everybody. It's me, 1,200 miles away. It's people out on the West Coast. It's people in the UK. It's people all over the world. And his name is never going to go away. And even his image. Because I can't say his name without seeing his school picture flash before my eyes. And it's very important to remember that Johnny's case is not the norm. Johnny's case is the exception. And I have not been able to find a single TV news report about Doreen Vincent. There have been numerous newspaper articles, but really all limited to the one paper, the Record Journal. And there are thousands of missing child cases with even less exposure than that. So it's interesting that you point that out that Johnny's case is not the norm. Doreen's case is. Yeah. And, you know, just in interacting on the followers of Fade, uh, Faded Out page, you get that from people because they don't know Doreen's name. They don't know Doreen's story. And, and people will sometimes say this is a less interesting case. And it's even more riveting or as riveting as Johnny's cases, but there's, there's just not enough information on it. Again, you point out most of the articles and there's not a ton of them are in the record journal. And most of them are pretty factually inaccurate. And again, as you pointed out right off the top here, because most of the info came from the prime suspect, Mark, which goodness gracious, if you're going to commit a crime and then you get to dictate the press coverage on it, there's a good chance you're going to get away with it for 31 years. And and that's basically where we're at right now. And and it's, and it's horrible. I I talked to Debbie Pereira, Donna's sister a couple of nights ago. Yeah. And I asked her when she knew or when they all collectively knew that they were probably never going to see Doreen again. And they said, after that first weekend, they knew something happened and 
Mark's yeah. Mark. They knew it was bad news, and, and they had a really bad feeling that 31 years later, we would be in this case, and that's exactly where we are now. Well, yeah, and I remember, actually, when we first went to Donna's house and we met everybody, there we got a soundbite from Stephanie that I never used, but um, I remember hearing it when she said it and hearing it back again. Uh, she said that the moment Stephanie knew, who was five years old at the time, that she knew that Doreen was never coming back was when she heard her Aunt Debbie say, I know he did something to her. I know he did something to her. And it was at that moment that even Stephanie at five years old um, knew that Doreen was never going to come back again. What a terrible tragedy. You know, I really like this family a lot. We got to send well wishes out to Donna, who who's not been doing too well, is in the hospital actually right now. Um, I really like this family a lot. And I know as they kind of think back on this whole thing, they certainly wish they had done things differently that they had done with Noreen did with Johnny and, and get more press coverage on it. They said they did do a TV interview and I've researched it with, I think the likely TV culprit who would have done the story and no one seems to be able to locate any sort of video on this story. So it, it may have, there may have been at least one TV segment yeah. And it's just it's, lost to the gone. ages. Yeah, I mean, I when I remember I first started uh, researching this case, I went onto YouTube and typed in the name Doreen Vincent, fully expecting to find at least one um, TV news interview, and there was never anything. Not, not one. Right after you told me about the case, she's three months younger than me. All my best yeah. friends are the same age living in Wallingford. And I was like, Hey guys, you remember the uh, Doreen Vincent case? And not a single soul had ever heard of it. And obviously we would find out later on why she hadn't really been there all that long. But mm -hmm. even after she went away, a 12 year old girl vanished from a rural town in Connecticut and nobody ever talked about it. That's yeah. weird. Well, and but I will say that Doreen's case does have the one advantage. I often refer to the Johnny Gosh case as having urban legend status. And Johnny Gosh is fodder for not only conspiracy theorists and armchair investigators, but also a lot of shysters and people claiming to be all these things, people claiming to be CIA agents when they weren't, um, people with huge credibility issues coming forward to claim that they know what happened. Um, the advantage of not being so famous and open to all your online web sleuths and everybody else who can stick their hands in is all of that information is sort of frozen in time. It's all preserved and untainted by outside people. And it is much less, for lack of a better word, bastardized. It's not a nice word to use, but really it's the most appropriate word when you consider how his story has been taken off the rails for so for so long. Yeah, well, I mean, again, being such a famous case, you know, you mentioned it, there's a lot of wannabe sleuths or a lot of people who want to put themselves into the case or closer to the case than they really were in reality. And... You know, a funny story. That's where Teresa Lyon entered this story. And, you know, you and Jess had both spoken to her. And I listened to the two interviews and I was like, no way. Like, mm -hmm. I, it, it, that was what I thought was happening here. Here's the one person in the world who really cares about Doreen's story. She's trying to put herself into it. 
and then literally was able to put herself into it and kind of tie a whole bunch of things together, some of which we're actually going to be touching on in this episode. The next category of items is the people in Mark Vincent's life at the time. And Jessica did a whole interview with Jimmy Farnham, who had owned the property and the house at 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road. And she spoke with Jimmy's ex-wife, Laura West. So before we dive into those two interviews, let me briefly give listeners a refresher on the backstory of that property. George Farnham purchased the property in the 1950s. Farnham then sold half the property, including the house, number 1316, to his son Jimmy Farnham in the 1970s. And at that time, Jimmy was married to Laura West, and they were having a child. And the other half of the property went to Jimmy's sister, Nancy Charles, who to this day, along with her husband, Bob Charles, owns and operates a bed and breakfast on her share of the property. Jimmy and Laura, with their kids, had lived at 1316, um, so Jimmy had gotten a job with the city of New Haven, and so they had to move to New Haven, um, but they didn't want to sell the house in Wallingford. They decided to rent it out. So enter in Mark Vincent. Mark had done work on the house at 1316, as he was employed by a company out of New Haven called Frank's Paint, owned by Frank IML. Mark said that he needed a place to live with his new family, and so that's how that came to be. Um, early on in our research, I had picked up a copy of the deed to the property from Wallingford Town Hall, and from that we found out that Jimmy Farnham and Laura West had owned the house at the time Mark and Sharon were renting it, and then it was just Laura West's name on the deed. And then in 2003, Laura West sold the house in a private sale to the current owners of the house, Bob and Sherry Ferguson. And Jessica found out during her phone call with Laura West that Bob and Sherry Ferguson were friends of Jimmy's sister, Nancy Charles. And Jimmy knew them too, but they were Nancy's friends. Um, so now it's the Fergusons who own that house to this day. So as I just stated, and as you probably gleaned from that rundown, Jimmy and Laura are no longer married. Uh, Jessica first spoke to Jimmy Farnham back in January, and we played for you clips from that interview back in episode five. And then she spoke to Laura West about a month later, though she did not want to be recorded, so we don't have her voice for you. But there were some inconsistencies in the things that they said. So let's start from the beginning when Jess first made the call to Jimmy Farnham. Hi, leave us a nice message and we'll call you back. Hi, this is a message for James Farnham. My name is Jessica Fritz-Aguire, um, and I am working with a podcast entitled Faded Out. We're looking into the 1988 disappearance of Doreen Vincent from a property that you owned and rented to Mark and Sharon Vincent in 1988. I was hoping to speak with you regarding uh, the property itself and maybe to see um, if you could provide a little bit of background information. Uh, hello. Hello. Hi, are you, you're talking about in Wallingford? Yes. Is it the, the, the girl that got, went missing? <clears throat> yes. Huh, weird. What, so what are you doing it for? What podcast? Um, it's called Faded Out Podcast. Uh -huh. um, my friend and colleague Sarah had a, um, she had an episode or a show last season about the Johnny Gosh disappearance in the 80s from Iowa. 
And um, she decided to pick something more local this time, and she happened upon Doreen's case. And we have just been doing some research. Have they, have they, ever, they never found her? They never found her, no. Because she was rumored to have been seen on the streets of Bridgeport, like, uh, sometime during that period. Okay, because from what we've seen in the media reports, we have not seen anything indicating that there was ever, um, you know, an actual verified sighting. Ah, okay, because I, I just heard that. Because I, um, the mother hired a private investigator that came out and pumped out our septic tank and the police were all over our property. They, they found a, um, a freshly dug hole in the woods and they dug it up thinking it might be a grave. It was okay. really bizarre. Oh, okay, okay. Did he have to get your permission? I think his name was Richard Novia. Does that ring a bell? The private investigator? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, they paid to have our septic tank pumped out because they thought it might have been there, the body. Right, right. So you're trying to figure out what happened? And yeah, we're just trying to piece together because, you know, when you go and you... And, and I'm, I hope you don't mind if I'm recording this just so we have it for... Uh, yeah, yeah. If, I mean, I... I'd sort of require me to use in the podcast. If, if that's all right. Uh, I, I, I guess, I guess. I mean, what? where is your podcast broadcast from? Is, mm. it, like, is it on iTunes or something? Yep, you can get it on iTunes. It's called Faded Out, and you can get it pretty much anywhere. If I mean, if you'd like, I can email you a... Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I guess I'd be a little bit more guarded. <laughs> I wasn't being guarded in what I said, but... So, yeah, um... He, I guess I'll be more guarded was the first thing that he said. A couple red flags went up during those first two minutes. That's an interesting thing for somebody who just rented a house to say, I'll be more guarded. Why would you feel the need to be more guarded? We've talked about this to death, you know, maybe not on this podcast, but you notice at the beginning where he said the girl that went missing from Wallingford, Mm -hmm. trying to separate himself a little bit from it. Uh, The girl that was, went missing. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy seems like he knows more than he's letting on here. And it doesn't sit well with me. And, you know, Sarah, we've listened to this call repeatedly. Mm -hmm. uh, And obviously we're going to be putting this up against the information we got from Laura West. And uh, he's a weird fella. He says some weird things and she contradicts quite a bit of it. And, and of course, that's going to make for some for some interesting play here. So Jimmy Farnham and Laura West each said that they had met Doreen a few times. Um, but one of the first things that they differed on was how they described her. Uh, here's Jimmy Farnham on his memory of Doreen. I, you know, I don't 100% remember his name even, but he was a guy who worked on our house as a as a carpenter for uh, Frank's Paint in New Haven, Frank IML. Okay. I think he's retired. I don't, did you hear about that? <clears throat> no, that's new to me. So he was he was like this born again Christian guy who was like totally spouting, um, pre, you know, always talking about Christ and very. Uh, and we had to move into New Haven, so we rented it out to him because he'd worked on the house. We did a renovation of it. Okay. And then. Um, Things got super dark. His he basically went back into his old life. Of uh, we'd heard that he was a drug dealer, and he basically you know left his wife. And I think they had a baby. Uh, yeah, they had two. Yeah, two baby. Yeah, and then and, and the daughter was his daughter by a, a prior 
marriage, I think. Yes, she, <clears throat> her mother, she, yep. And she was very spooky. I mean, she was sort of, she was about 13 or 14. She was, I, I only saw her a few times, but she was very sort of goth. I mean, very, uh, she reminded me of uh, the, the young uh, uh, daughter in Beetlejuice. I mean, she was, she was always wearing black and very black hair, very pretty. And, uh, but always very quiet and seemed kind of like, uh, oppositional. Okay. I think he had some troubles, they had some troubles with her discipline wise. So Laura West, when asked about Doreen, remembered her a little differently. She did use the word goth, but when she said it, it was like she was actively searching for the right word. Um, I think the only reason they say goth is strictly in reference to Doreen's black hair. And, and, and the and very white else. skin. Yeah. And, and we, you know, which is not by choice. I mean, she was a 12-year-old girl with naturally black hair. And, but Laura used another word to describe Doreen, and that was skittish. Um, so you've got one person saying she was oppositional, while another says she was skittish. Laura went as so far as even to explain that it seemed this family was scared of Mark. Yeah. She said, I didn't see it, but he seemed like a guy who had a temper. I'm not sure where Jimmy Farnham would have found Doreen to be oppositional. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't understand what context he would have been dealing with Mark and Doreen where she would have been oppositional because the extent of the relationship... With the Vincents, according to Laura, was met him to show the place and then to give him the keys. And that was yeah. about it. You know, also weird, uh, Jimmy calling uh, a missing 12-year-old a really pretty girl. Yeah. That also kind of raised the hair on my neck a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, there was just something about the way he said that she was kind of spooky, but very pretty. And... That always just sounded like an odd thing to say to me. And I remember early on, I remember having a conversation with Jessica and I remember saying to her that to me, it just seemed like such an inappropriate thing for somebody to say, for Jimmy Farnham to say that Doreen seemed oppositional or that they had problems with her discipline wise. It just seemed like that was not his place to say. So it's, it's just a weird sort of um, thing to say when you don't have a relationship with a pre-existing relationship Unless with somebody. Unless you do have a relationship with Mark Vincent that you're not speaking on. And right. the reason I would even suggest that is because Initially, when we did the search on the property, we saw the name Laura West as the owner before, as you mentioned, the Fergusons. Jessica spoke to Jimmy Farnham. It was a pretty lengthy phone call. She asked about Laura West, and at no point did Jimmy Farnham even suggest in any way, shape, or form that he had any kind of relationship, let alone was married Mm -hmm. to Laura West. Just kind of a weird thing and you're talking about having a pre-existing relationship with mark and i want to also talk about how jimmy says that he doesn't 100 percent remember mark's name (laughs) and his only descriptions on him were that he had done work on the house Uh, he had told us how mark 
worked for Frank Iml. Um, he remembered him as being a born-again Christian and very spouty, as he called it. Um, but when Jessica spoke to Laura West, one of the first things that Laura said just a minute and a half into that phone call was that she remembered Mark, the father, as she called him, had an explosive temper. And she went right into talking about something that we touched on before. Um, she said that after Doreen disappeared, Mark went into her room and took her things, brought them outside and burned them in the driveway. Um, and Laura said that she didn't see the fire, but she did see the after effects from it in the driveway. And we've reported on here before that he burned Doreen's diary in the driveway. And that happened after she went missing. Um, how that is not a major sticking point in any of the newspaper articles or in any report about Doreen is nothing short of remarkable to me. Uh, that it, it's... It's, I mean, it's destroying evidence. I mean, that's a felony right there. I guess my thought is, did the Wallingford police ever do an actual sit-down interview with Laura West? Or if they spoke to Laura West in the days right after the disappearance, did they talk to her after she saw this? Did she tell them she came over and saw the remnants of mm -hmm. Doreen's stuff burned? Basically, burn marks uh, uh, and and what was left of what had been burned in the driveway, mm -hmm. red flags all over the place. And again, you have to ask yourself why the Wallingford police have never followed up on any of these any of these leads. And and you know, look, maybe there's nothing to it. Maybe Mark just burned her diary for no reason. Maybe he was yeah. just angry. Be a weird mm -hmm. thing to do. And of course, there's some precedent for Mark setting a fire. Mark famously burned out a disco in the 70s yeah. in New York. Mark would later burn Roseanne Poloni stuff, which is burn what her clothes. Yeah. ended up getting him arrested, where he would finally see at least the tiniest bit of justice in this case. And there was another pivotal question that Jess asked both Jimmy and Laura and I want to talk about both of their answers. Here's Jimmy. Do you remember if he did any renovations to the house or any improvements to the house while you were renting to him? Yeah. Uh, no, not that I remember. Are you thinking of what might be in the walls? Uh, well, it's funny that you say that because the day that the mother, Doreen's mother and her aunt came to pick her up, um, they said he was constructing a concrete patio or some sort of concrete um, in the front of the house. Huh. Weird. Like, like, like pouring concrete. Pouring concrete, and he had um, he had a like it was roped off, and they couldn't get around it, so they had to go through the side door. Huh. Well, the main the people in that house use the side door more. The front door is not really used. The side door is the kitchen is the main door for people coming in and out. So. So the front, the side door, is that the door facing the road when you drive past the house? Uh, no, there's, there's, a, there's a door that faces the road, is the front door. Okay. Into a, like a old formal hallway, and then there's a side door with a porch uh, that I built on the side. Um, to the, if you face the house, it's on the right side. Okay. And, you know, we, we had, um, when I lived there, I was trying to, 
create a passive solar porch. So the, the whole porch is, you might notice this has all glass. And then we had, we had actually poured, the, the porch had been just a wooden porch and we created a, a stone porch, filled it with rocks, put in piping and, and put concrete over it. Um, that was well before he was there. So I don't, I, don't, I don't remember seeing any concrete work that he ever did. But then you've got Laura West who told Jessica that yes, Mark did do work while he lived at that house. Yeah, uh, Jimmy said that it was $600 a month, no work. Laura said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever saw rent for Mark. Uh, What he actually did was do work to pay off what he owed, that he had been doing some painting in the house and basically negotiated the deal that I'll fix up this house if I can live in it. And because, as you mentioned, they had to move to New Haven, that's exactly the way things worked out. Uh, He also now, you hear Jimmy start talking about the work that he did. Mm -hmm. The interesting part was, and again, as you kind of get into the audio, uh, he refers to the work being done by we. It's we built the patio. We did this. I did this. We. And so I had said to Jessica, make sure you ask Laura if she is the we. If, If Jimmy really did work on the property and Mark didn't, somebody must have helped. That's why he's saying we did. And no, Laura says absolutely not. She did not do any of the work. Yeah. She wasn't sure if anybody had. It seems like the work was either done just before or right after Doreen disappeared. That's been something that that we have not been able to figure out. Jessica just let us know a short while ago that there was never any permit pulled for the laying of the concrete patio. So that we don't know when it happened. We, we can certainly take their word for it, but really, why would you? Yeah, well, I mean, and she also came in here just a few minutes ago, just saying, basically saying that Jimmy had pulled down the barn that was there in October of 1988. Correct. A month before Mark vanished mm-hmm. from the property forever, mm-hmm. that workshop slash barn which Mark claimed was where he was the night Doreen went missing between eight and nine o'clock got torn down. That is wow. So for those following along, Doreen went missing in June of 1988. A few months later, October of 1988, Jimmy Farnham pulls down the barn that Mark used as his workshop, which is where he is said to have gone after Doreen left the house And then one month after that, Mark disappears. You know, I've been saying from the beginning when a sociopath gives you a specific detail that there's more to it, that there's that it's 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 a bigger part of the story than they're going to let on. And the idea that he said between eight and nine that he was in that workshop when she supposedly vanished off the face of the earth has never sat right with me. And now to learn that thing was literally torn down just before he vanished gives me all the pause in the world that I assumed when we first found out about this, Sarah, that that there's definitely more to the story and that that barn slash workshop probably factors in here quite prominently. Mm-hmm. In a little bit, I think we're going to sort of get into some of the stuff Mark said to me. You know, we know yeah. Mark liked to build stuff, and that's why he would be in that workshop. And that's why I thought it was so weird 
that around the time she supposedly vanished, or as we've come to understand, die, Mm -hmm. that he would be in his workshop working on something. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about this season, as you just said, how Joe has spoken to Mark and they've exchanged text messages, disturbingly cryptic on Mark's end. Um, And we have mentioned that Mark now works at a Christian-based organization for at-risk youth getting off substance abuse. Uh, But we made a point to never mention the name of the organization. Um, The organization that Mark Vincent works for is called Teen Challenge, and it's on Spring Street in New Haven. We first learned about this place back in December when Joe made the first call to Mark because when we got his voicemail the first time, his outgoing message said, this is Mark of Teen Challenge. And I immediately Googled it on my phone. Um, This is how we found out about this place. Um, This is not a well-known establishment by any means. Um, From the very beginning, we wanted to make sure we kept the lines of communication open with Mark, and that's why we kept the name confidential, not only on the podcast, it even extended into when we did interviews. Um, so here's one more clip of Jessica interviewing Jimmy Farnham, a clip that I haven't played for you before on this podcast. And where, is he still alive? Uh, yes, he's alive. <clears throat> he... Um, He's actually joined a, from what we can tell, he's joined and is a leader in like a, a Christian group that works with at-risk children um, with addiction problems and, you know, criminal backgrounds. Um, is it Teen Challenge? Or? It's Teen Challenge. Yeah, you know about Teen Challenge? Well, I've seen, their, seen them around New Haven. Is it New Haven? Uh, yes. In the Hills section of New Haven, I've seen their sign and I've seen them, their vans going around. Okay. Oh, you might have crossed paths with them. So they seem, they seem to be a pretty upright Christian group. Jimmy Farnham has heard of Teen Challenge. Yeah. I've never heard that name in my life before we heard it on Mark's voicemail message. So. I, after we looked it up, I didn't even understand what it was it, still. Me neither. And I read more about it. And a lot of the writings uh, about it weren't all that complimentary. Not at all. I will say this. We have spoken confidentially to some people who work at Teen Challenge. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who are not comfortable with Mark Vincent, who have always felt, not even knowing about this case, because for a lot of people, when they, people who know Mark Vincent, a lot of them don't even know this story or don't even know that this thing is, is, is an unsolved missing persons case. Because from what I understand, Mark... Uh, walks in love. Yes, is is how that is the phrase that we've been told. It. Yes. Yeah. Um, in my conversation with Mark, he did tell me that he has basically moved on from all of this. Um, can we say what he said on uh, the phone call? Um, he said, "I loved my daughter, and I will see her in glory." And I immediately <laughs> asked if that meant she was dead. Because that's how I have always understood that term. And Sarah, you know, we've as many people as as you and I and Jessica have talked to this case about, and it's a lot. Mm -hmm. I would say about 90% of the time when we tell people that line, they immediately have the same reaction. Oh, that means he knows she's dead. Which 
How would he know that? Well, especially when he supposedly is not involved at all. He's not making any conscious effort to find her, never even reports her missing. Um, And yet he says, I will see her in glory. And then when you asked him, um, does that mean she's dead? He got very defensive right after you asked him that. Uh, yeah, he, he immediately, uh, did go on the defensive. He was like, I didn't say that. How would I know that? I'd have to guess that. Why would I guess that? Uh, and, and I tried to back off him a little bit at that point. I, I thought maybe, you know, I, I offered up, maybe it was, uh, uh, you know, just sort of that parental, you just kind of know thing. Uh, mm-hmm. and then, and then I brought up, uh, child pedophile rings. And mm-hmm. everything was cool again. And then he wanted he, to talk. Then yeah, he was he like, did. he agreed with every word you said. Like, I think when uh, when he called you back, one of the first things he said was that uh, it starts with our government. He, yes. he immediately wanted to deflect. And, you know, it's like, oh, it just it leaves me nauseated. It starts with our government. Um, and then he says, and they're getting younger and younger. And just there was so much packed into like the first 10 seconds of the phone call when he called you back. I actually agree with Mark that a pedophile definitely did something to Doreen. That a pedophile is 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 uh, responsible for her disappearance. I, I w- believe that. I would say so too. Yeah. 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 He and I and you, uh, we may argue on who. On who. On, on who we may <laughs> have. I think we all agree on the what. Yes. Uh, and I think this is why I make this um, the second category, so to speak, on why Mark is not in jail. It's it's because of the people he knew, the people who were in Mark's life at the time. And Jimmy Farnham, I think, is a more pivotal character in Mark Vincent's life than Jimmy was letting on when Jessica talked to him. Jimmy does a lot of things with the community, you know, a lot of like nature things and, you know, Prison reentry is yeah. another thing that he does. Interesting, yeah. he'd be in that field of work. Interesting, uh, you know. He he also is is very involved with uh, children and education. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he Jimmy went to a, a museum and he posted a whole bunch of pictures on his Facebook page. Mm-hmm. I went on his page. I was flipping through it and was struck by nearly every painting he took a photo of. Mm-hmm. was of a child with a grown-up. Yes. Struck me a little weird. Yeah. In the context of this case. It's like the first moment that you hear from Jimmy Farnham in the very first clip. There's something very, um, very, very calming about his tone. Very, uh, in, like, like, like he can ingratiate you. And, uh, you know, very charming, sort of a, you know, very comforting. Um and, you know, pair that up against how he describes Doreen. She was very, she was kind of goth, but very pretty. You know, it's funny. You're going to, you're going to uh, mention Frank Imel, mm-hmm. uh, who's an important character in yep. this. And I'll tell you the difference between Frank Imel and Jimmy Farnham. Jimmy Farnham has never returned another call since this first call. Yeah. We've reached yep. out to Jimmy on multiple occasions. Frank Imel not only took the call, talked to Jessica, he gave up as much information as he knew. About 30 minutes after the first call, he called back because he thought of some new information. 
And mm-hmm. we've seen this with some people in this case where they, I just want to help. Hey, is it all right if I think of something, can I call you later and, and I'll think more on this. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that there's also been quite a few people who, uh, after first contact, never heard vanish. from, never heard from again. It's not a good look. No, it's not at all. And let's, so let's talk about Frank IML. Um, Jimmy Farnham mentioned Frank IML the owner of Frank's paint the company that Mark was working for when he first did work on the house. Uh, Jessica reached out to Frank and she asked him what he could recall about this former employee. Frank clearly remembered Mark. He did also remember when his daughter went missing. Um, He said that he met Mark through another employee of his named Glenn Alkire. And Mark and Glenn were members of the same church. And he had been told that Mark had these exceptional carpentry skills. So he hires him and he said when he hired him, Mark was very professional, very affable, kind of on the quiet side. Um, But that's when things started to take a turn. Um, Frank said that Mark would often borrow money from other employees, always say he would pay them back and he never did. Frank also said that he sold Mark a car on credit and he never did pay Frank back for the full sale price. Um, He recalled incidents of Mark losing his temper while on the job. And though Frank never saw this happen, he would hear about it later. And he would hear about Mark getting into these heated arguments with other guys on the job and he would throw boxes around, etc. And um, the first time that this was reported to Frank, He had trouble believing it because he had always seen Mark as the quiet type. But all of this led up to Frank firing Mark. And this is very much in keeping with everything we've been told so far about Mark. Um, Quiet guy, not necessarily physically violent, but was known to suddenly have these outbursts. I'm glad you brought up the car. I mentioned in the last episode with Teresa Lyon that... She mentioned specifically that Mark's truck went missing in late July of 1989, which we now know the reason Mark suddenly didn't have his truck was it was in police custody Mm -hmm. as part of the warrants that were served. So initially, Mark was borrowing Teresa Lyon's car. She then said, next thing you know, Mark had a car and it wasn't long until once Mark had what he needed, where he once again sort of left Teresa behind. She described the same blue car that Frank IML said that he sold to Mark. Also interesting, Frank at one point went to Mark's mother's house because Mark had given him a down payment on the car and then never made another payment and did what Mark does, vanished off the face of the earth. And Mark's mother told Frank IML, wow, I'm surprised Mark gave you anything at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Frank also, you know, you you talked about the way he was at work. This was a guy who would bum 20 off of you, 40 off of me, 30 off of this guy, and then just never pay anybody back. He doesn't respect other people. Definitely won't step up. Again, we we know this is a guy who will get in your face and and talk some smack, but he's a lot of bark and and no bite Mm -hmm. when it comes to other grown men. Well, absolutely. I mean, and that was uh, just evident in a lot of the text messages and stuff that you guys exchanged. Uh, you described it earlier as sort of a Hannibal Lecter type of riddle. Can you, do you want to share some of what he said? 
You know, uh, yeah, I, I suppose I could probably just uh, dig right into this. Uh, and, and I explain it as being Hannibal Lecter-esque in that it, it, it's, it's sort of a riddle, I guess, would be the, the best way to describe this. Uh, I, I, had, I had talked to him uh, back and forth a few times, and, and, and uh, here's what he wrote. In the newspaper many years ago, the police said I was in a certain park and I was, quote, carrying something. Was it, question mark, a picnic basket or a body? In fact, if it was a body, the dogs would have found it. I went to my lawyer. He said the police can lie all they want. And in fact, they do. And next they found a piece of clothing in my trunk with a spot of blood on it. So they say, well, an old shirt of mine and I'm in construction. I bet I got a cut and wiped it on the shirt. They obviously did a DNA test. They didn't uh, and found it wasn't Doreen's, but they didn't include that in the newspaper article. It wouldn't fit their drama. By the way, this grown man uses emojis yeah. like a 13-year-old girl, uh, yeah. which I find very, yeah. very interesting. I remember when you first showed me that text message, I was yeah. like, he's talking about like his daughter dying and he's like he's was it a picnic basket or a body i don't know And he's got like smiley face emojis in there and i mean that alone i mean this guy he's that alone that behavior right there says something yes well (laughs) again in in all of our exchanges i've never just heard anything about doreen He's never talked about Doreen. And again, we've talked to so many people in this case. And people always want to talk about Doreen and, the, and or, or Doreen's family. And Mark only ever wants to talk about Mark. Stay tuned for part two. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Panette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.